0: Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. I think we've been doing this long enough that I don't have to explain to you that we're in Acts. I think for a whole year I explained. We've been going through the book of Acts. I think most of you have figured that out by now. And if you haven't, you're quick learners, you'll catch on quick. Acts chapter 19, we are still in the city of Ephesus. If you weren't here last week, we talked about how Ephesus was a A booming city, a happening city, a city where there was a lot going on, a city that was economically doing well. It's a port city. And uh, in that city was not just uh, thriving commerce, but in that city was a lot of paganism, a lot of idolatry. Sorcery was a regular thing. Uh, A secular historian This is not a, it's not a Christian historian that said this, but a secular historian of the time, a Roman historian of the time said that if you went by the temple of Artemis, the great temple of Artemis in the city of Ephesus, that your young women would blush and your young men's hearts would turn to lust. That was the type of depravity that was taking place out in the open. You know, I believe that light exposes darkness. Do you believe that? Light exposes darkness but in Ephesus, the darkness wasn't even that, that hidden. People were so blind that the darkness, the, the things of darkness, weren't even taking place in the shadows. They were taking place out in the open. And the light of the gospel came in and pierced it. And if you've ever read, read the book of Ephesians, if you've never read it before, you need to read it tonight. Just start reading it tonight. It'll get you fired up because the book of Ephesians spends a lot of time telling you who you are and who we are in Christ, who we are in his body, about the gifts that he's given to us for the sake of the body of Christ, for the sake of the world. But then in in, in chapter four, he begins to talk about some things that we used to be a part of. And he's talking to these Ephesian Christians. He's saying, you used to do all of these things, those things you formerly walked in. Thank God that's a former thing. That's not a present thing. He said, those things you formerly walked in. But then he starts out chapter 5 with a bang. It says, and and, and, and all throughout chapter 5, he says things like this, but now you are light. You know, he doesn't even say you have the light. He says you are light. Therefore, walk as children of light. And he goes on to say, don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead rather expose them. And so, As children of light, as people of light, he says, these things that you used to be into were great darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I thank God that no matter what your past is, it does not define you anymore. No matter what your past is, it's not your present circumstance. It's not your present identity. You've got to know that your identity has been changed. I thank God for the work of Alcoholics Anonymous. They've done good work, but there are some things I might correct if I were running it. And the one thing I would correct is I'd stop making people say, I am an alcoholic. I'll always be an alcoholic because I believe that even though there are temptations that continue to come against you, at some point when you're born again, you have to realize I am not who I used to be. I've been set free. And because I am who he says I am, I don't have to go back to the bottle again because he's been, I've been set free by the blood of the lamb. So now I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The scripture makes it very clear that for the rest of our life, we will encounter temptation. For the rest of your life, there will be trials and temptations that you must stand again. You must resist the devil. But one thing it doesn't call you, it doesn't continually call you sinners. All throughout the New Testament, he refers to you as saints. Your identity's changed. In the city of Ephesus, we are about to read how sinners turn to saints, how God dramatically took a dark city and turned it around to the glory of God. You know, I like this. I love Acts chapter 19 because I like to see a city that was so messed up and not see the Christians run away from that city, but see the gospel pierce into that city. When we read Acts 19, I don't care where you live, and I think most of you live in Lloyd Minster. But it doesn't matter where you live, there's not a city so dark, there's not a community so dark, there's not a workplace so dark that the gospel can't bring light and totally change your circumstance, totally change the environment. So the gospel is about to win and we're about to read about it. Uh, if you were here last week, we read about the uh, seven sons of Skeva, who attempted to cast out an evil spirit. They were not followers of Jesus, but they thought Jesus was a good spell that would work they practiced uh, a form of Judaism mixed with sorcery. And they had their spells and they had their names that they thought would work. They were Jewish exorcists, but they didn't—they um, weren't submitted to the one true God. They had mixed too many things together. And so, uh, as you remember, they got kicked out of the guy's house. That one man full of a demon cast them out of his house, beat them up, stripped them naked. But it says that, the result of this was that the name of the Lord was being magnified, that people were seeing that there was a name and there was a power that could cause demons to run screaming and it couldn't be imitated and it couldn't be faked. I like that. You know, what's what's really going to expose the counterfeits in our in our country, expose the counterfeits in our society, expose the counterfeits in our own churches is not... Um, a million books written about it. Now, maybe there needs to be a book written about it. The, the letters to Paul, the letters of Paul, the letters of James, the letters, of Timothy, uh, letters to Timothy, letters by Peter. They all addressed some things that you had to watch out for. Jude did the same thing. There were some things that you might need to watch out for. Beware of people that are teaching this. But at the same time, the only way to really overcome a counterfeit is to show them what's real. And so we see that the name of Jesus is being magnified because the counterfeit's showing to be lacking and the real thing is showing to be powerful. And I want you to see what happens in uh, verse 17. We read this, but I'll read this again. After these seven sons of Sceva get kicked out, it says, This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. That means Jesus' name was getting bigger in everybody's hearts and minds. May that be so in our city. May his name be magnified in Lloyd Minster. says, many also of those who believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. Remember I told you that Ephesus was full of witchcraft. It, was, it wasn't like you had a group of people that said we're witches It was that everybody bought into, if I'm going to prosper, I need to not only uh, worship these the right gods and goddesses, but I also need to have some spells in my back pocket, which will make me do well and make my enemies and my competition fail. It was a part of life, and you spent a lot of money on on books of magic. You spent a lot of money on your own little spells. And so it said they kept coming, disclosing, thank God. You see, this is what happens is when the gospel overcomes and when the light comes into a dark place, the darkness is exposed and people bring it out into the light. What the devil would love for you to do is just stay in the darkness and hide everything. But instead, here's what God says, bring it out into the light. It's forgiven. It's whole. Bring it out into the light and get rid of it and that's exactly what they did they kept coming and disclosing their practices and it says this that many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver now if those pieces of silver are drachma then uh, or denarii then what we what we most scholars will tell you is Whatever it was, it was equivalent to a day's wage, probably. So think about what 50,000 days' wage might look like today. It's a lot of money, isn't it? And they burned it in the sight of all. What a statement that might have been. Just try to think of a place in Lloydminster. Don't yell it out, but just try to think of a place in Lloydminster where it might be in the sight of all if we, if we just started burning some books. You know why the book burning thing has just gone way out of hand? Because people forget these guys were burning their own books because they were turning from idolatry and turning to Jesus. They didn't go to the store and buy a bunch of the books so they could burn them. If you've ever done that, I'm going to let you know, let you in on a little simple rule of economics. If you go buy books for the sake of burning them, you're supporting the author. (laughs) The author doesn't care if you burn his stuff. It's more money. He just wants to sell books. Please buy more. He doesn't care. They weren't burning other people's books. They weren't protesting other people. Do you notice that? They didn't go and raid people's houses it's like, "Give me all your books, I'm going to burn them." They burned their own books. This wasn't about them protesting everyone else. This was about them turning to the living God and saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and I am not going to go out and just, and just put these things on the shelf and say, maybe I'll use them later, or maybe I'll sell them and make some money. I want nothing to do with this magic, and I want everyone to see that I've been set free. Come on now. Thank God. You think about the kind of guts it would take to do that in front of all your neighbors. It was not a protest, it was, it was them turning publicly to Jesus. Verse 20. So so means because of what we just read, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. I like that word growing I like the phrase growing mightily because that means to me that it wasn't just a little bit here a little bit there growing mightily means it was spreading at a rate that was surprising people it was it was mightily moving amongst the people and it says it was prevailing what does prevailing mean it means it was winning We don't need to be afraid of the messed up places. We don't need to be afraid of the cities that seem so dominated or the neighborhoods or the workplaces that seem so dominated by evil. We need to step in with the gospel of Jesus Christ because the word of the Lord wins. It wins. It prevails. It grows. How many of you know that God is not afraid of the dark? God's not afraid of the dark. We don't need to be afraid of the dark. We don't need to go and retreat and find our own little space and say, well, you know what? I'm so concerned. I don't want to be polluted. I don't want to be messed up. No, no, no. Now, number one, it does help when you're with a body of believers, right? In the same sense, Jesus sent them out two by two. He didn't send the one guy out and just say, have fun, hope you survive. Because we strengthen one another. And The body of Christ will keep you. The fellowship of believers will keep you from stumbling many times because the Bible says when one falls down, the other one can pick him up. But the Bible also says unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you with great joy, blameless with great joy before the Father. God is able to keep you from stumbling. So don't be afraid of the dark. Now, I'm not telling you to go and say, you know what, I'm I'm a, a man of God. And I'm just going to go in, I'm going to go into the strip clubs, and I'm going to uh, watch the show, and I'm going to later pass out tracks to all the girls. No, you goofball, don't do that. It's a dumb move. It's not smart. Oh, well, I thought you said, don't be afraid of the dark. Yeah, yeah, let, let a lady do that. You know, (laughs) why don't you, you can wait outside with one of your strong sisters in the Lord. Why don't you let them, and and you too can wait outside the doors and love on people out there. You don't have to participate in it. You know, because he said to these people in Ephesus, he said, don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. You know, these Christians weren't going to the seances. They weren't going back into the rituals and saying, we're just going to, just going to watch. No, no, no. They didn't participate in it at all. But they weren't afraid either. And I love to see the gospel prevailing. And that's my, not just my hope, but my firm belief that the gospel will win. It will win not because we tried to force everyone else to believe what we believe. It will win when we start living out the gospel. You see, it says, here was proof that the word of the Lord was prevailing, was that people turned from idols and turned to Jesus, that they, they burned their books in front of everybody. You see, it wasn't that they converted the government, and the government made laws, that everybody had to start worshiping God, and everybody had to stop practicing magic, because you know what that does? That forces people to act right on the outside, but they don't change on the inside. I'll tell you, our solution for Canada, I believe godly government is a good thing, I believe righteousness exalts a nation. I believe you should vote, and you should not vote based on economics. You should not vote based on uh, what, what you think is a good idea. You should vote based on righteousness. However, I don't believe getting the right guy in the prime minister's office is the way to save Canada. I think it's a good thing, but it's not the way. The way to save Canada is the gospel, lived out and preached Because you know what happens? You get a good guy in government and he'll do good things. And I believe we should have good people in government. But that's not what's going to change everybody's hearts. What's going to change people's hearts is when you and me go out and we live the gospel and we show Jesus to a lost and dying world. That will change. And you know what? When you change that and when revival takes place in the cities and revival takes place across the provinces, the government will change. Why? Because we're the people. And the government follows the people. So you see, Ephesus didn't change because they converted the governor. Ephesus didn't change because they passed new laws. Ephesus changed because people turned to Jesus and saw the power of God and were willing to radically turn from their idols and radically turn to Jesus. The word of God wins. I think about what Paul said to uh, the Thessalonians. He wrote to them and he said, he said, pray for me. And pray for us that the gospel, the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be glorified just as it was with you. Now, if you've heard me talk about this before, you'll remember that in the Greek, it doesn't say that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly. It literally says, pray that the word of the Lord would run and be glorified just as it was with you. So what does it mean for the word of God to run? It means it's not just creeping along, it's moving fast and it's spreading. And it's not spreading because everybody's coming to hear one guy. It's spreading because people are, I mean, everybody that receives the word is spreading it to to two, three people, four people. Everybody that receives is, is letting that out, but it's being glorified. The word of the Lord is glorified when we live it. The word of the Lord is not simply glorified because we talk it. The word of the Lord is glorified when people see it's true. Why was the name of Jesus magnified? Because when people, the people of God cast out demons, the demons ran. And when the fakers tried it, the fakers failed. So the name of Jesus was magnified because when he stood up against the fake, he was proven. The power of God was proven in the sight of all. We have got to live out what we hear. We've got to live out what's preached. And we've got to make it more than that was a good message. The gospel is glorified when it changes us. The gospel is glorified when it causes us to live. The gospel is glorified when we see it in action. Thank God the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Do we want to see this in Lloyd Minster? I do. Now I want you to see something coming up. That's even more exciting, which is what their enemies say about them. You can tell a lot about a group of people, about what your enemies say about you. And in this case, the enemies say some things that they think are insulting, but are actually pretty cool. It says in verse 21, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Verse 23 says, about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. No small disturbance is kind of the new American standard, stiff upper lip of way of saying there were riots. No small disturbance. There was a big deal about the way. The way is what they were called back then. They they hadn't yet been called Christians. They uh, some of them had in certain cities, but in Ephesus uh, and in many other places, they were simply called the way. And they were following Jesus. They were known as the way. And there was a great disturbance, a big disturbance caused because of the way. And, and that's, that's a good thing. If nobody's disturbed, if nobody's sort of shaken a little bit by what's being preached, by what's being, uh, you know, demonstrated, then, then maybe we're a little too tame. I think the gospel, when it's preached, now you don't have to be rude. You don't have to be mean. Oh, please don't. But when the gospel goes out in power, it will shake people out of their comfort. When the gospel goes out in power, people are either going to love it or hate it. That's just the way it is because Jesus said people will either love me or hate me. And he said people will hate you because they hate me. See, most of the time when the gospel doesn't shake anybody off of what they believe, that's a problem. And I'll tell you why it's a problem. Do we believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father? I would have thought a little bit more forceful of a yes than that. We do, right? Yeah. (laughs) If some of you are unsure, we can talk after. Jesus said it. I didn't say it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he goes on and says something controversial. He says, nobody comes to the Father except through me. So we believe that uh, he's the way. We believe without him, there's no way. There's no life. There's no truth, right? Would Would I want people going to hell to be comfortable on the way there? If you're on your way to hell, does it matter that you're on a la- in a lazy boy on your way? Do you think that somebody is going to come up to you on, ju- on the day of judgment and say, thank you for not stepping on my toes with your beliefs? They're not going to say that. Once again, I'm not telling you to be a jerk here. You see, because the greatest witness that the Ephesians had was that they publicly lived out their own faith. They publicly lived out the gospel. It wasn't about them forcing anyone to do anything, but they preached it boldly. They lived it boldly, and they they demonstrated it boldly. And I believe we should do this as well. But there will always be, you have to be ready for a a disturbance. Anytime there's revival, there's a disturbance. Shaking is a good thing. When you're grounded in Him. Yes. To everybody else, if you're not grounded, if your foundation is not secure, shaking is a devastating thing. And there are times of shaking in our cities. There are times of shaking in the body of Christ where you look around and you say, this is devastating. But in reality, things are being shaken so that what's good, what's true, what's pure is what remains. It's a scary thing sometimes to pray for shaking, but I tell you, the Bible says in certain places everything that can be shaken will be shaken. But it says since we serve a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us worship God. So let's, let's, let's read the rest of this. It says in verse 24, so there was a, no small disturbance. In verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. So remember, uh, the temple of Artemis was the great temple in Ephesus. It was, in fact, later to be known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was major. So there was a huge part of the economy that was based on selling these little silver images of Artemis. Now, they didn't buy it like we would buy it, not let me tell you this. If you go to Greece, don't buy a little silver statue to Artemis. Well, I'm looking to worship it. Don't buy it, you know. I, I, you know it's always kind of weird when you walk into somebody's house and they have little tiki gods and stuff like that. And you go, oh, jeez. I don't, I don't think my wife would be too happy if, you know, I, I, I don't really have a, a you know, I, I don't have a sordid past. But, you know, if I put up posters of other women on my wall and say, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not in love with them. But, you know, they're on my wall. No, she wouldn't be too... Would you be thrilled with that, Tia? No, that would not be cool. <laughs> and in fact, I have no desire to. So when you're worshiping God, you don't put up other gods and other idols up there, right? Right? But these people weren't just buying it as a souvenir. It wasn't a harmless souvenir. They were buying it because they believed it brought them good fortune. It believed that it was a blessing to them. Put it in your house. It will do well for you. And so they would buy these little silver shrines. And that was a major part of the economy of Ephesus was related to the temple. People would come from all over the civilized world to that temple. And they would go home with these idols and these shrines. And so it was bringing a lot of business to the craftsmen in the area. Now, I, 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 I'm just going to be honest with you. The gospel, like I said, will shake things up, and sometimes it'll shake up the local economy. Don't you know God wants to bring revival? There are, there are great men and women of God in Las Vegas today, great men and women of God preaching the gospel. There's great churches in Las Vegas, and when the gospel shakes Las Vegas, some people are going to be really, really mad. So business goes away. You know, you know when Charles Finney went around New York preaching the gospel, radically preaching the gospel, people were coming to the Lord. There was one story of him walking into a, a seamstress shop, and he walked in. He didn't say anything, and this 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 young girl who was a young lady who was sewing, and at her at, at her station looked up and just saw his face and began to weep. And God just softened her heart right there, and she repented before the Lord, just there without a word. There was such revival taking place in these towns. But what they said was that the bars dried up, went out of business. Do you know why they went out of business? They didn't go out of business because a bunch of Christians stomped around with signs in front of them. They went out of business because the customers went away. You know? They went out of business because people got saved. And they didn't want that anymore. They had something that was far better, far more satisfying, something that brought them far more joy, and they didn't have a headache in the morning. They were—I mean—so this is why the brothels, the brothels dried up, the bars dried up, not because the Christians said we're going to burn your place down, but rather because the gospel took root, and the customers went away. And that's what's happening in Ephesus. It's not that the Christians say you better shut this down. You're infringing on our rights. No, they preach the gospel and people stop wanting idols. (laughs) The gospel wins. You don't have to make the gospel win. It wins. If you live it out, if you preach it, if you demonstrate it, it wins. Here's what it says. And it doesn't win like we think it wins. Remember, Jesus' disciples said, when's the kingdom gonna come? When are you gonna overthrow all these people? When are you gonna set up your own kingdom? And he tells them, That's not for you to know when that's going to happen. But the disciples constantly tried to make Jesus take the kingdom, his own, like take the kingdom like an earthly king would and set up a government like an earthly king would. And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not a kingdom you can see. See, the, the way of the kingdom of heaven is so much greater than the kingdoms of this earth. The way of Jesus is different. We don't overcome the same way that everybody else overcomes. And you know, when Constantine, the emperor of Rome, was converted to Christianity, or so he said, I'm not going to question his salvation, but when the man was converted, instead of showing up in church and saying, I'm a new believer, teach me, he said, I'm the emperor, I guess I'm in charge now. And you know, Christianity started a steady decline from that place. Because Christianity, which was, held its allegiance to the kingdom of heaven, began to operate like a kingdom on earth. It began to be governed like a human government. But I'm telling you that that's not the kingdom we serve. So we're not going to see the gospel prevail because we, we pass some new laws. Now, I thank God for, for good laws. I believe there should be good laws. But I believe that's not the way you win. The way you win is to preach, to live, and demonstrate the gospel. And watch it do what it does. Let Jesus do what Jesus does. Let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does. Let him move hearts. And you declare it to everybody you come in contact with. You show them Jesus. Here's what happens. They're they're getting a lot of business from idolatry. In verse 25, these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia. Now remember, uh, let me just clarify in case you haven't been here. When he speaks of Asia, he's not talking about it like Asia, like we picture it today. He's talking about the Roman province of Asia, which is now modern Turkey is most of that province. And so he's not talking about China, Japan. He's not talking about India. He's talking about uh, East of Greece. All right. So he's, Uh, This is what he means of Asia. He's not talking, they weren't really aware of what was going on in China. They weren't aware of what was going on in Japan. Their civilization, their known world is a lot smaller than it is now. But he says, you know that our business depends on this, not only in this city, but in all of Asia. But in this whole region, in this whole province, it depends on us selling idolatry. Us making money off idolatry. See, sin has profit for some. It always leads to destruction, but people will attempt to profit, uh, profit out of other people's temptation, out of other people's weaknesses, and that's why the drug trade has brought profit to people. It's destroyed more lives than you can count, but it's brought profit to some. The gambling industry has destroyed lives, but it's brought profit to some. The prostitution industry has destroyed lives, but it's brought profit to some. Sin will always have a dangly carrot that somebody says it's worth it for me. That'll always bring some earthly profit, but way more destruction than anything else. Enough profit to get people to be involved in it. These people are profiting off of others' idolatry. And they said, you know, our business, our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? I love it. See, I love when the enemies get the message right. They're mad about it, but they're getting it right. You're absolutely right. That's what we're preaching. He says, not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Do you hear that? He's concerned, and rightly so, because except for a, a few silly little sorority girls and maybe a couple of pockets of people trying to resurrect ancient Greek religion in Greece, nobody's worshiping Artemis today. How many people are worshiping Jesus? Stood with Brother Spiro at Olympus where the great temple to Zeus, one of the other seven wonders of the ancient world, all that's left are a couple of stone pieces of rubble. That's all that's left of Zeus's legacy. It falls, but we serve a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Here's what they're saying. Here's the concern. If this guy keeps preaching... This goddess that the whole world worships will be dethroned from her magnificence, will fall into disrepute. People are going to stop worshiping her. And you know what? They're right. I love to hear this this message from an unbeliever who's ticked off because he's absolutely right. He's telling us that if the gospel keeps getting preached, they're going to be out of a job. And the whole world is worshiping this goddess, but he recognizes that this gospel is way more powerful. Guys, don't you want somebody to have to have a meeting like this about us? (laughs) Don't you want them? I mean, instead of us meeting in the back rooms going, oh, we're going to keep them out of our city. Wouldn't you like them to be meeting in the back rooms going, guys, we're going to go out of business. There's revival spreading across lloyd Minster. It's not even limited to one church. It's spreading across the the city. It's not even limited to buildings. And guys, if this keeps happening, we're going to be out of business. Why not? Why not? Is our city worse off than Ephesus? No. You know what it's going to take? It's just going to take some believers who actually believe what we preach. And just go out and live it. And you know what? Maybe you need to publicly just, just and I, I'm not talking about having a bonfire by the border markers, but I'm saying, you know what? Maybe some of us are just too, a little too attached to the idea of blending in with everybody. And we need to be okay with just being different. Just be okay with being radically different and say, you know what? We don't need to fit in anymore. We're okay with people saying you're weird. We're okay with people saying you're, you're odd. I'm okay with that. Let's be odd. I don't need to fit in. Do you need to fit in? There's a bunch of blind people wandering around. God bless the blind. Jesus loves the blind. If you doubt that, read the gospel. But there's a bunch of people, let's say, with blindfolds on. All right? They got blindfolds on, and they're walking around banging into walls. And you don't have a blindfold on your eyes. Do you go around banging your head into walls just to fit in with them? No, you don't. What would be the more polite thing to do? Take the blindfold off their eyes. We try so desperately to fit in. So desperately to be politically correct. So desperately to be accepted by the culture. But you got to know you're not going to be always accepted by the culture. Now, we are people of love. But even the Bible talks about your good being evil spoken of. You can walk in love and people still hate you. That's what Jesus did. Who's more loving than Jesus? And yet they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Yeah. So it's all right to be weird. It's okay to be different. In fact, we should be. You know, the scripture says, the scripture talks about, once again, Paul's talking to the Thessalonians, how the whole world had heard, the whole, all of Greece had heard how these people had turned from idols and turned to the living God. And I like that because what it describes to us is somebody turning from something, turning to something. I believe that when you turn to Jesus, inevitably turning to Jesus will cause you to be turning from something else. You can't live in two worlds for the rest of your life. I said to the folks in Loon Lake the other week, we're talking about something else, but I said, you know, you could try to be like Zorro and have a foot on each horse and ride for a while like that. But it won't be long before this horse wants to go that way and that horse wants to go this way. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world have different goals. So, pretty soon, you're trying to ride two horses, they will split in opposite directions. And, guys, you know that's a painful thing. Pick a horse. Better to pick one now than to have the choice made for you. This gospel is a gospel that wins. It doesn't win like the world sees it. It's much more mighty. The kingdom of heaven is much more powerful. It's much greater than these pitiful little kingdoms of the earth. The Bible says that all, one day all of these kingdoms of the earth will crumble. One, of the, one day these, all of these kingdoms will fall. And, and history has shown us that every great empire, every great kingdom eventually fell. Even our own. You know, we're, we're Canadians, so we're not really part of a, we're, we're technically part of an old aging empire that's not an empire anymore. But, you know, every, even these empires that are empires now, you could say the United States is a superpower, but it's only, you know, it's not that old at all. It's not old. It's like 250 years old. Not even that. And so... You know, this is fairly new. They will all fall. And the Bible says in the book of Revelation, there's a moment where they all say the kingdoms of this world, they have become the kingdoms of our Lord, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever. We serve a kingdom which cannot be shaken. I want you to know the gospel wins. The gospel prevails and the gospel is made to grow mightily. If it's not growing mightily, we might need to recalibrate our, our settings. We might need to double check and say, Lord, now don't be discouraged by lack of numbers. Don't be discouraged by what you can't see. Because many things that are powerful and, and are, are mighty are things you can't see quite yet. But at the same time, can we say, God, I trust you and I believe that the gospel's meant to grow mightily. It's meant to grow mightily in my workplace. If you work in the oil field, do you pray for revival in the oil field? Because you should. And you should be a part of it. Those guys that you show up with every day and you're working on the rigs, you're working wherever you work, and every day you're coming in contact with them, they are seeing something. Whether they're seeing you or they're seeing Jesus is up to you. Those of you that work in the service industry, you know that when somebody comes up to your counter, if you worked at a bank and they come up to your counter, you can't say, can I help you? And can I also lead you to Jesus? Your job doesn't let you do that. But you have enough conversations with those coworkers that if they don't know by day two that you follow Jesus, I wonder what in the world you've been talking about. And it's not about shoving something down somebody's throat. It's about the fact that my life is so defined by Jesus, I can't hide it. I can't hide it if I tried. And you say, well, that's easy. You're a pastor. Of course you can't hide it. But guys, I'm telling you, think about how different you are from when you got before you got born again. Think about how different you are. Embrace that. Let the gospel win. And and I believe this, and this is is what we're going to kind of end on this thought, that the gospel was prevailing in their city because it was prevailing in them. That's very important. You see, that statement, the gospel was growing mightily and prevailing, comes right after they decided to burn their books of magic. They decided that first the gospel must win in my life. If it wins in my life, then the kingdoms of my heart will fall. The idols of my heart will fall. We can't presume to preach the gospel to our city if the gospel has not yet taken ground in our own hearts. We got to let it win here. It's got to win. This is the first territory it's got to conquer. The gospel won in Ephesus because it won in their own hearts, because they were converted, because they were changed, because they gave up their old ways and turned to a living God. God is not asking you to go out and shake somebody until they change. He's asking you to first change yourself. Let God, let the gospel win in your own heart. And when it wins in your own heart, it will win in everyone around you. Now, you might have some people that reject it. That's not your fault. That's not your problem. But it will begin to win. Because I found that people that have let the gospel win in their hearts are contagious. They're infectious. People are drawn to them and they don't know why. I've said this so many times that you might be tired of hearing it. But it is a dangerous thing to walk into a service, hear a sermon, and go home with no intention of doing anything about it we'd be better not to hear it at all. Because in the hearing of God's word, when you do not do anything with it, your heart gets harder. I encourage you to just let it win in your heart. Let it win in your heart and let the conquering king conquer your heart. Kingdom by kingdom, idol by idol, battlefield by battlefield. For the rest of your life, the Lord himself is going to take over more and more of your life. And that's a good thing. Now, some of you, when you hear that, you think of more time doing church things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Lord winning over in your heart. I'm talking about things that used to matter to you don't matter in the light of him. I'm talking about things that used to have you in bondage don't have you in bondage anymore. I'm talking about things you used to think were so important lose their shine in the light of his glory. And, he, and, and I will tell you this, that when you first get born again, the Lord does not, he does not usually give you a whole giant list and say, give up all these things because you wouldn't be able to do it. You wouldn't be able to handle it. But if you know, just like I do, if you've been born again for any period of time, you find out that just when you think you've figured it out, the Lord opens another door and says, it's time for you to go deeper. <laughs> well, Lord, I thought I was doing good. He says, you are but I show you a more excellent way. There's more. There's deeper places to go. And so for the rest of your life, the king of kings is going to become more of a king of your heart if you let him. More a king of your soul if you let him. More of a shepherd to you than you've ever known he could be a shepherd. And when the word of God prevails in you, it prevails in your city. If the word of God would prevail in this group right here, We're not a big group of people tonight. But if the word of the Lord would prevail in our hearts, it would shake the city. It would shake the city. And I believe that God has already begun a good work in you. I'm not speaking to a group of people who, as far as I know, I'm not speaking to a group of people that are rebellious and stiff-necked. I'm speaking to a group of people that desire Him. Let Him really, like, just dive in with both feet. And I believe that God's going to bring you to the valley of decision where you're going to have a choice, whether I hold on to some things I used to think were important, whether I let them go and choose to hold on to something far more valuable. And when it wins here, it wins out there. When it wins in here, it wins around me. The word of the Lord grows mightily, and it prevails. So I pray first and foremost that the word of God would grow mightily in you, and that it would win in you. And then, that it would grow mightily in Lloydminster, in the regions surrounding Marwain, Lashburn, Maidstone, that Macklin. All of these places that the word of God would spread through not only the preaching of the word, but the demonstration of the word of God. And we would see revival sweep this, these prairies. And I believe that it's going to happen. And I believe that you're going to be a part of it. So I encourage you to don't lose heart. Don't get discouraged and quit cursing and shaking your fist at the darkness. But as the old saying says, stop cursing the darkness and light a candle instead. Instead of cursing the darkness, get your candles out. And light a a candle in the darkness. Shine your light in the darkness and watch the darkness dissipate. Amen. Stand up with me this evening.